Hi there. I'm Sean Eckford, a board member here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily podcast, at least daily during the festival. And we're into day two today. Another great one weather-wise. Lots of sunshine and a nice breeze off the ocean to keep things from getting too hot. Now, I have a background as a historian, so I will sometimes see if I can spot a history theme in uh, some of our events. And to do that, I need to go a little bit backwards to our last event on Friday night. Kamal Al-Soleili, who is a journalism professor at Ryerson in Toronto and also author of Brown, What Being Brown in the World Today Means. Now, he talked about a lot of issues involving race and politics, but also explained why he decided to change his approach to the chapter he was going to do on Canada. But the 2015 federal election was happening. And before I, before I even sort of started planning the chapter, it just, I said, I, had, I have to write about this. It, this was a particularly painful moment. I had been in Canada at that point for almost 20 years and have never seen a federal campaign that went out of its way to target um, Muslims as a, as, as a wedge issue. And, and this is Kelly Leach and Chris Alexander, of course, setting up this niche line where you can just call up if you feel like your Muslim neighbor is doing something barbaric, pick up the phone, there's a helpline, and call us. Um, it was clearly dog whistle politics. We are, I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak to, on behalf of anyone but myself in saying, I think we dodged the bullet here. But, but I don't want to end on that note because I do not want to end on Kelly Leach. But I, I want to end on, on the last, something from the last two pages of the book. And this is in the middle of that federal election in, 20, in October 2015. A knock on my apartment door jolted me out of my afternoon nap. It was a Friday about three weeks before the October 19 election. And I assumed it was one of the candidates from the three major political parties doing the usual door-to-door canvassing. I had just missed the recent visit from the conservative candidate and was looking forward to giving her an earful about her party's race politics and references to old and new stock Canadians. I had a whole rant prepared and was ready to go the moment she or one of her volunteers returned to my building. But my spiel would have to wait as the knock came from my next-door neighbor and friend, Doreen. The evening before, Doreen told me she had watched a news report on BBC America on the conditions in Yemen, where a war between Shiite rebels and forces loyal to the internationally recognized post-Arab Spring government had entered its seventh month. The war continues, by the way. The report focused on the humanitarian crisis unfolding in the Arab country's poorest, in the Arab world's poorest country, a story that had more or less disappeared from most other news outlets. All eyes were on the Syrian refugees trying to make it to Europe by land or sea. Doreen, 87, could not sit still and do nothing about Yemen, a country she had absolutely nothing to do with apart from having a neighbor who hails from it. But she wasn't sure what the best course of action would be. Armed with a check for a few hundred dollars, she had knocked on my door for suggestions about which aid organization was going, was doing the most to alleviate hunger or ensure an adequate medical response to an ever-expanding number of casualties. I cried. With so much negativity in the election cycle, I had forgotten that at heart, most Canadians are compassionate, kind, generous people who don't buy into the narrative of a Muslim threat to their existence. When Canadians like Doreen, white and old stock, see human suffering in a poor country, 
they feel compelled to lend a hand and share some of their wealth with the less fortunate, without waiting to hear what religion these people believe in or what sect they belong to. Thank you. So I didn't really have to stretch the point come this morning at nine when our first author, Janie Chang, who's just written Dragon Springs Road, was presenting. She, of course, is a historical novelist and apologized for doing what she called a historical information dump on an unsuspecting after-breakfast crowd. But she did go on to give some fascinating insight into just what happens with all that research historical novelists collect that may not end up explicitly in the book. And, well, it turns out in some ways it does. She likened the process to to making a soup stock. When the soup stock's done, you don't necessarily see the bones or the bits of vegetable or even uh, traces of the spices you used, but the flavor's all there. And some of it just informs the overall approach to the work. By the afternoon... We were deep into the history of Canada's Indigenous peoples, thanks to Bev Sellers, whose latest book is Price Paid, The Fight for First Nations Survival. Bev and her husband, Chief Bill Wilson, were both on stage talking about mainly Bev's work and uh, Bill's work to come, a book he's just in the process of writing, and I caught up with them during the book signing afterwards. Well, there's a lot of, there's all kinds of history books, but but they're not accurate. And and even if they try to be um, written in a way uh, that the, the, the history is is a little better. They're not done from an Aboriginal point of view. And I think the way we see history versus somebody else that's even trying to do a good job is so different. So I think it's important that um, Aboriginal people write their history. And and the the non-Aboriginal people don't have these stories, the inside stories that need to be told. How does um, being in an event like this and, and having such a large audience to talk to help with that process? Bill and I, have uh, we've had quite, quite large groups before, not at a writer's festival. This has been the biggest um, group that we've had at a writer's festival. And I think it helps for people to understand where we're coming from and uh, any Native people, in the, uh, any Aboriginal people in the audience you know, it might inspire them to write or to tell their story or their mother's story or their grandmother's or their uncle's story. You know, I think that would uh, encourage them to to do some writing. And I keep telling people that when I go out speaking to an Aboriginal group, I say, you know, write your story or write your grandmother's story. Get it out there. They can't go to the grave with them. Has there been a, a reluctance, you think, for, for people to actually tell those those personal stories? Well, I mean, my story, uh, my first book, they called me one, number one. I say that I cried enough tears to fill a swimming pool. And mine is actually one of the better ones. There are my bro- some of my brothers and sisters who act, won't have anything. They won't think about it. They don't want to go there. It's just too painful for them. And they're not the only ones. There are people that uh, have had a very traumatic life. And if you think about it, you know, some non-Indigenous people, if they something happens to them, a traumatic event happens to them, they go for counseling for, for years. 
but Aboriginal people, it's generations of trauma. And if you, when you go to the school and you're subjected to oppressive laws under the uh, Indian Act, it's your whole life. So it's not just one traumatic event, it's a whole bunch of years of, of this happening. I, I just wanted to get, to get you to reflect on, on the same thing I was just asking Bev about, the, just the importance of having a chance to, to be on a stage like you were today and, mm. and share these stories and, and information with an audience you might not be familiar with. Well, I think it's, it's a great opportunity. I mean, really, that's what books are about, aren't they? It's supposed to be about learning. You know, one of the problems with the new generation, we got three generations of illiterate people because of cell phones. You know, I, I bet you, uh, if you went into most schools now, you would find very few people with a library card. That's how I got my education, was by reading books. And uh, But then you need good stuff to read. And then you also need opinions expressed that are worthwhile repeating. And that, I think, is what's important about this. You know, Bev has spoken to larger groups. I've spoken to, you know, groups of like four or five thousand. And, uh, you know, but it's, you've got something to say and there's something there to learn. And that, uh, that makes sense. I mean, it should, do, it should happen all the time. When you get that chance to look someone in the eye and have that conversation about the, the serious sorts of issues that that, that has been writing about, do do you do you see at some point that that light go on, that understanding happen, where people may have been confused or just not known? Oh, before? sure, sure. I mean, the response from the people here, you know, was obviously very very favorable to Bev's presentation and to some of my presentation, and that's a learning experience. I mean, if you don't learn something every day, you're you're getting stupider. So. Your book that you're working on, what are you writing? How, how, it's basically uh, a political tome on the things that have taken place since about 1960, mm -hmm. Yeah, when Indians became citizens of this country for the first time. And I was involved politically from the 60s on to the present day. And it, and I, like I said in my speech, I met, I met all of the politicians, all of the white politicians, including all the Indian, Métis, and and Inuit ones, and it's a collection of the stories about the development of Aboriginal people generally, but then also the Constitution and the changes that have taken place. Okay. Do you have any uh, uh, solutions as to, to where we go forward with that process from here? Oh, sure. sure. I mean, the, the, the key thing about it, what I mentioned in there, is that you have to have respect for uh, for each other, mutual respect and dignity is the only way we're going to get by. And uh, getting beyond the assumption that I know what's best for you or you know what's best for me or your religion is good for me, I mean, we've got to get beyond that to some kind of understanding. We're appreciating we may be different, but the reality is that we're going to have to get along somehow without surrendering our individuality to each other. But the solution for Indians is to continue to be Indians. Because being poor copies of the white man is uh, doomed to failure. I mean, we're, you know, like I'm not a white man and I'm very proud to be who I am. And I know who I am. I know my name. I know my history. I know my culture. So perpetuating Indians, you know, not some kind of amalgam of melting pots. But, you know, Indians have to be here forever. You know, 27 separate tribal groups in the province of British Columbia had contact. 100 years from now, there should be 27 separate tribal groups. You know, we, we have a challenge to do that, and the only way we can do that is by learning. If you isolate yourselves into your separate groups, you know, we got the only church, we've got the only political party, we've got the only cause, you're, you're, you're really stupid because it's not true. Okay, so let's stretch the point a little bit, because this 
really isn't history. It's maybe sociology, or at the very least, very recent history. Pat Carney, whose book is called On Island, Life Among the Coast Dwellers, and Amber McMillan, who wrote The Woods about the year she, her husband, and her daughter spent living on Protection Island near Nanaimo, shared the stage with Catherine Gretzinger, who was interviewing both of them. And what follows, and we apologize for this, contains a lot of coastal BC inside jokes. How does you listen to Amber with her um, reflections, and I know you've read the book as well. Um, what do you observe about her way of observing life on the island? Well, I was afraid you'd ask me that question because I'm one of the passive-aggressive, meddlesome islanders that she writes about. No. <laughs> no one can and believe I, that. I talk to people on the ferry, and uh, Amber, not too sure if she thinks you should talk to people on the ferry yet. She isn't. Uh, but no, it's always interesting to see another person's perspective uh, on how to cope. Uh, I say in, in my stories that when the people move to the island, like the professor and his wife, you go through three stages. The first one is euphoria, I'm in paradise. And that's a bit in Ambo's book. The second one is depression. And we heard that, you know, the power's out, the ferry's out, the internet's out, it's raining. And and then the third one is acceptance. Like, we're here. We sold the house, okay? And and you try and fit in. So in my, my professor's wife, they try all these desperately unsuccessful attempts to fit in. And Amber, if you'd stayed there another few months, you would have got to stage three. Do you think, do you think I would have? Yeah. But the little secret, though, I beg is... to differ. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, the, the island got to you because you now live here on the Sunshine Coast. I do. I, do. I live on another kind of island. No. Of. You... Yeah. No, you're, you're a coast dweller. I mean, my oh, yeah. book is called Life Among the Coast Dwellers. Yes. So, you're just in a so now I'm an insider. Oh, no. You, oh, have no. To be here <laughs> you have to be here at least 25 years to get, to get your visa. Then the citizenship comes later. Oh, much later, yes. do you get the instruction manual because I honestly in reading your book and seeing the way that people just seem to know how to be dancing around other people and reading your book about oh my god I don't know what I would do how do you figure this stuff out well I don't think you ever do you just make do okay (laughs) is it like you you pretend you've got it and then when someone new comes along you say look at this fool (laughs) unable to that's we have that's where we have different points of view because uh, (laughs) She, she writes about how in her island, which is actually just a, a suburb of Nanaimo, you know, is the... Yeah, that's yeah, true. It's, it's my, my island is four to seven hours away on the ferry when it runs, you know. But, by the way, just on that, the new ferry, the eagle that's gone in, the, every day I get a, a service notice, notice Aww. of service, running late, elevators don't work, stop for refueling, and then the famous, you know, uh, lack of crew. <laughs> So, uh, the, and the, uh, but the biggest thing about our life in the coast as coast dwellers, at some point, if you haven't got this, we, you will. We have an incredible sense of community. So if you don't know how to do something, somebody else will help, even if he doesn't know either. But <laughs> I think you learned this. I think I have learned this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So what you should know is Protection Island is a tiny little slip of land that's just off of Nanaimo. Um, a very small group of people live there. It's a real motley crew. So if all of you who have lived up and down this coast, like all of us have, um, understand a motley crew, it's a motley motley crew. Uh, I think that's... These I, city dwellers. <laughs> what, they, what they say about us, you know. We're I, not motley. We may not be sophisticated, but motley we are not. And there you have it. There you have it. to something because because it's a very small, very teeny tiny community. I mean, we're talking like 150 at the low point of the year. So this room, I mean, this is three protection islands right here. <laughs> You're talking about such a small group that I think, I might agree with Pat, Motley might not be the word. I think it's more, <laughs> I think it's more such an extremely small, such an extremely intense situation that um, the greatest parts of our humanity and perhaps some of the worst are available. So I wasn't using Motley as a pejorative. I was using it as a, these, these pieces don't all fit together is all I meant. That's how I was using these it. These CBC people are amazing. <laughs> motley is Motley. <laughs> Nice to you. Well, keep trying. <laughs> okay, so Amber. <laughs> now, you may not have picked it up listening to that exchange, but there was a bit of fallout from Macmillan's book. There's, after all, not that many people on Protection Island. They all read it and they didn't all like it. The question of how exactly she found out they didn't like it, it did come up. Well, there's a lot of public forums available in today's mighty world of the internet. So um, the, the quick and easy answer is um, those public forums, um, Amazon, Goodreads, Facebook, Twitter, those, those democratic public... <laughs> I, I might have a few extra words about all of those. That's, I mean, that's, that's the risk you take. I mean, I... I what I did was I made something public. I published it, right? I, I didn't have to do that. Um, so, I mean, what I'm, what I'm saying is that you're entering into a contract with the public, whether you like it or not. And, and you can't possibly control how that's going to work out. So, so it's okay with me, is what I'm trying to say. I'm on firmer ground now because we'll definitely be continuing the history theme tonight with our Hutchinson Lecture with Charlotte Gray, who's the author of The Promise of Canada, 150 Years, People and Ideas That Have Shaped Our Country. Uh, maybe a little more on that on tomorrow's podcast. But let's say for now that if you're not here this evening, you're going to miss a lovely night under the stars in the Rockwood Gardens or in the pavilion with the sellout crowd.